Hello and welcome to the Three Musketeers podcast. Introducing the brothers behind it, Hamid and Hissam Amiri. Join them on their journey as they discuss unconventional topics from different perspectives. Real experience with key speakers around the world. Hello and welcome back to another episode with Three Musketeers podcast. It's myself, Hamid, and Hesam. Today, we're joined with Anne Leslie from all the way from Paris. I'm going to try and do her justice of what she does and bear with me. I'll, I'll pass it on to her. So her day job is a senior consultant in cybersecurity at IBM, but she's also a the co-editor of the AI book and a podcast host herself and a guest lecturer at Neoma Business School in Paris. So we can for sure say she has a lot of experience and knowledge which is why we've asked her to be a guest with us today. Welcome to our podcast. I'll hand over to you and let you do the intro justice of, you know, who you are, what what you've been doing the past several years. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be with you today. I really appreciate the invitation. So I'm Irish by nature, which you can probably hear from the accent. I've just been living in France for a very, very long time. I came here to finish college and then I I had no real plans of staying. Just life kind of happened. And I've done a whole bunch of different things sort of since business school. I've, I've worked in banking. I've worked in software companies. I'm now working in cybersecurity. But one of the things that's sort of a constant in all of my jobs, it's always something to do with finance and I I don't know whether that's sort of the universe kind of sending me in a certain direction, but it's a fact. You know, even now in cybersecurity, a lot of the work that I do is for banks, sometimes for insurance companies, but mainly for banks. But over the years, what I realized is that I find something very noble in banking as it was when it was first created. And I think we're probably going to get into this during our discussion today. But it's sort of, you know, what banking was, what banking has become, the financial crisis, the context of all of that as a backdrop to what we're seeing and have seen already in blockchain and cryptocurrencies. It's all very, very relevant. And it's part of the reason, and I'm looking forward to getting into this, it's part of the reason that I did get very drawn to blockchain, sort of issues around social justice and financial inclusion and trying to say, well, you know, what is, what is banking fundamentally? What do we need it for? What purpose, what social purpose does it, does it serve? And you spend a lot of your day job sort of as a consultant and you might be in the city of London or you might be in New York or whatever. Those aren't topics that actually get discussed that often. You know, they're sort of fringe topics and yet in my very humble view, they're absolutely crucial. So I'm really looking forward to kind of getting into all of these topics that are very much interlaced between banking and currency and what purpose all of that serves. But in a nutshell, I'm, I think I'm very curious by nature. I'm not any one thing. You know, you sort of say, you know, people define themselves by their domain of expertise. Today, I happen to be a cybersecurity consultant In the past, I was a software seller. I've been a full-time stay-at-home mom. I've been a whole bunch of things. I'm never just one thing, but I think maybe that's what makes me a little bit interesting, I hope, is that I just, I like learning about new stuff and I like hearing about what other people are doing. And I'm just, I love being around people who have ideas, people who think people are trying out stuff, trying to make things better. So I think curiosity more than anything is sort of, 
the thing that defines me. I love to learn. I love to, I love to find out about new things. And you know what? Let's just dive into it. One of the reasons we created the podcast several months ago now is we want to educate ourselves, learn more from others with, you know, experience. And this obviously case is, you know, is, is you. And today, I guess we want to learn more about the future of the world of finance. Want to get a better understanding of, you know, the so-called latest hype of cryptocurrency and NFT. I know we are saying latest hype, but it's been around for a few years. Oh, Hassan says so based on the, the research notes. <laughs> and, and most importantly, as you mentioned, Anne, the tech behind blockchain. Yeah, that's ideally what we want to talk about. We're not going to give any secret, amazing financial advice where we all become millionaires. Is that not what it, this is? No, you have to go uh, follow. You have to go follow <laughs> Elon Musk for that. I had, I had my notes on papers, so you know what Anne was was suggesting. I make a note and I go make a make an investment. But no, you're hundred percent right. We're here to learn about blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrency, and what do those actually mean? So let's just dive into it straight away. And so I guess you've mentioned those words. Should we just talk about intro into the tech behind blockchain? What is it and how does it work? So blockchain is one of those things that, you know, you can either talk about it in terms that are extremely, extremely complex. And I'm going to leave that to people who are much better qualified than me. You know, I'm not going to get into cryptography simply because I can't. Right? I have a cursory understanding of how it functions, but this very sophisticated maths behind it is beyond the scope of what I'm able to talk about credibly. But I can talk more about why it can be useful. Right. So one of the things that is a problem on the internet is friction in transactions. So this issue of trust, you know, we, we have the connectivity now that will allow us to interact with people in any place on the planet. And we may or may not know them and they may or may not have something that we would like to buy from them or obtain from them. But this issue of trust is you know, if I give money, for example, am I going to get the thing that I actually bought? Or how can I assert title to something that is fundamentally digital in nature? And blockchain is the internet's answer to a very old concept, which is the ledger, you know, the bookkeeping ledger. And it's a way of inscribing in a digital form, and this word that is often used in the context of blockchain is immutable. What that means is it cannot be changed. So for example, you can have a transaction where you buy something or you want to talk about traceability. You know, I, I am putting a luxury good and I'm going to be able to inscribe that into this ledger that is the blockchain and say that this is a representation of a genuine luxury item. It could be art, it could be diamonds, something that has a lot of intrinsic value, well, let's say intrinsic, a lot of value in the eyes of people who are willing to put a lot of money in it. And this, what is particular about blockchain, this characteristic of immutable, as in it can't be falsified or changed, which is very important, and decentralized which means that there is no single party that has full control over this ledger. And again, this is a very important thing in that it means that we're not able to falsify. So people who are connected to the blockchain, it's kind of hard to conceptualize in our minds, but it's just this idea 
that if you are a participant in the blockchain, we have these transactions that get inscribed. And once they're there, they're there forever. And there's the kind of sort of a philosophy around this, which is very important because a lot of our more mainstream ways of inscribing or recording are centralized. They would go through, for example, clearing houses. They might go through central banks. It's like there is a centralized one single centralized authority endowed with the power to say, we are going to validate this transaction or not. And what is fundamentally different with the blockchain is that there is no central authority. There is decentralized power. And if you are participating in the blockchain, you are as equal you to anybody else. And that's actually something that's very important because it's a philosophical change, like a paradigm shift from a centralized authority that we consider is trustworthy and that we are going to look up to, right? But the central bank is a very good example of this. Central banks are endowed with authority because we allow them to be. It's not like a natural law, right? We, we have agreed by consensus in the societal norm that central banks, the focal point for validating payments, for keeping control of our money supply. But if we just move a little bit, well, why was there this shift? And it's an interesting thing to look at in terms of the genesis of blockchain and Bitcoin, because it's a revolt, actually, at its genesis, a revolt against this idea that there should be a centralized authority. And a lot of that came from a buildup over time about, well, what kind of world are we living in or what kind of world do we want to live in? And a group called the Cypherpunks was behind this. Now, a group I'm in absolute numbers, I don't think it's a huge group of people, but very, very smart thinkers. And their, their fundamental philosophy was, and still is, is, you know, we want to be free on the internet. We don't want to be beholden to centralized authorities. We don't trust them. We want to be actors of our own destiny. We want to be able to choose privacy. And just they had sort of discussion groups and chat rooms on the internet, and they would work together remotely, trying to come up with ways of preserving privacy on the internet. And the person or the group of people, because we still don't know, right? The person, as I'm going to, we're going to give a pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto, is this name of an individual or a group, we still don't know, it's shrouded in mystery. But Satoshi Nakamoto, Nakamoto is attributed with the creation of Bitcoin. And it's a really important thing to have in mind if you're serious or maybe just you know curious about getting deeper into blockchain, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is understanding where it came from. Now, you may or may not care, but if you are interested in sort of the future of money and the direction in which banking may go and the direction that some of our governments actually may go and regulatory authorities in regards to their posture on these, these issues, it's important to understand where this all came from. And this idea that we would take control away from a centralized authority and decentralize it and democratize it amongst individuals, that's a very, very important, slightly radical move because 
a lot of our societies don't function like that. I mean, there some of our societies, if you think, for example, in China, it, it couldn't be further away from that. So it's essentially a way of, in its simplest form, a trust protocol, a way of instigating trust between people who may not know each other, who may not normally trust each other, but who have an incentive to transact with each other and a way of recording that without it having to go through a centralized validation authority. So it's still, I can, I can understand people listening to this and kind of go, yeah, okay, but what does it look like? It's quite hard to get your, your, your head around. It's, it's essentially nodes, right? Which are sort of computers that are connected via the internet in sort of a lattice representation all over the world. And it's getting, it's getting bigger and bigger. And while that's great in terms of it's getting bigger and bigger, it means it's getting traction. It also means it's getting a bit clunkier because everybody has to validate something, right? So in terms of processing times and how quick you can validate a transaction, it is maybe one of the downsides of it. But it's an essentially a move away from the, in, the earlier days of the internet where we have an internet of information, where information sort of circulates. And some people have, and groups and organizations have maybe been smarter, more forward thinking, and they've kind of appropriated the information. You know, a lot of our information, our personal data is on the internet. We don't get much value from it. Oftentimes, I think maybe we don't even think about it. But our data has value, particularly when you start to consolidate it and aggregate it and have mass volumes of it. And it's one of the issues, I think, going forward that we are going to have to resolve is, well, my data should be mine. And you know, we have new laws and regulations like GDPR trying to address the balance on that. But how can we be more equitable in terms of who gets access to that data? Should the value of it accrue to the owner of it? These kind of things. And blockchain initially, it's maturing and changing a little bit. But the idea would be that there might be a way of changing how value accrues to different people and not just a monopolistic accrual of value to one or two, you know, Google, for example, would come to mind, Facebook would come to mind, that there would be a more equitable way of distributing value and having people participate in the internet in a different way. So if it helps, you talked about, you know, blockchain and saying to the audience, it's quite hard to describe it but for me and i'll be honest you know yes i i had a degree i still have a degree in computer science but you know i've not been close to the blockchain and bitcoin just because i've had other stuff in my mind but your explanation in the past few minutes is clear for me i can actually visualize what you're saying so i would say what you've described is actually really really good for me to understand and visualize it Good. Well, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those topics where I trying to explain it without getting lost in, a, in the weeds of how it functions, because it's not that it doesn't matter, you know, for it to be valuable, it does have to work. It's extremely important that we have robust processes around how we're coding, you know, sort of the hygiene around coding, because the trust that blockchain is meant to bring, well, it's contingent and dependent on how we deploy it. 
So anyway, all that to say is if, if I've managed to give you a cursory understanding so that you can visualize it in your, ma- in your mind, I'm happy. Good. We take that box. No, no, you, honestly, you have. And, and what's interesting, you were describing the, um, the infancy of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and a move away from a traditional a bank should control my transaction and be the, the gatekeeper. It's interesting. I'm looking at some information also has pulled together that cryptocurrency or I guess creation of Bitcoin was around 2009, just yeah. just before the financial crisis. Just, no, just after, just after, just after. Sorry. So, yeah. so to me, that make what what Anne just mentioned is you know financial crisis happened. Then you had this group of people that are very intelligent and said, "Well, hang on, what can we be in control of our transactions?" And we don't have faith in banks because it, we did, and look what happened. Yeah, because if you go back in time, financial crisis a lot of banks went bankrupt because of how they dealt with money. So in a way, people were like, let's change the system and take control of ourselves. If we had to sort of do a follow-up from what Anne explained, is everyone remembers financial crisis. If, if not, based on your... You're too early. Based, based, <laughs> on, based on your age, go look at it. Because financial crisis, it's a historic event. It's all of the... There's, there's tons of information online. And what Anne's described is... The 2007 and 8 financial crisis led to people with the right amount of skills in, in technology and online to say, well, hang on, we need to safe-proof ourselves." And how they've done that is through creation of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, using blockchain. So I guess what I want to follow up from that is, and we've, we've talked about briefly, do we want to talk about the future of the world? Do we see decentralized banking to be the new norm or a digital currency that we'll all use day to day? Yeah. So there wouldn't be a pound or a dollar. There'd be a Dogecoin or a Elon Musk coin or something ridiculous, which we'll all use every day online transactions. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. This question of the future of money is fascinating to me and it touches so many different domains, right? There's philosophy in there. There's behavioral economics in there. There's core economics. There's just like so many political science. And one of the things that I just, I, I have noticed is that, right, we touched on it in the intro, that there was this group of cypherpunks and they were trying to protect individual freedom and privacy, trying to move away from centralized authorities who had revealed themselves as no longer trustworthy. I'm specifically referring to banks and even central banks. And if you really want to push it, you know, governments, you know, even in sort of our Western economies. And yeah, there were banks that did go bankrupt. A lot of banks got bailed out. And the people who actually bared the brunt of the financial crisis, it was the real economy, right? It was, it was the working man and woman. I don't know that there were very, very many bankers who actually lost their homes. And when you look at the statistics of the amount of real economy savings that disappeared, the amount of people who lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, lost their homes, I mean, the amount of suffering that the financial crisis caused, and in some cases is still causing, it's massive. And yet banking as an industry, I'm sort of revealing my bias here, right? But I, I stand by it. Banking as an industry recovered very, very well. You know, we still talk about cleaning up banking balance sheets with we've got non-performing loans, toxic assets. Yeah, okay, 
but it's a situation of their own creation. You know, I, I'm not going to lose too much sleep about the fact that a major bank has some non-performing assets on their bank on their balance sheet. I'm much more concerned with the fact that people who put their money into the bank, trusting that it would be there, and who took out mortgages in good faith and find, found themselves victim to predatory lending practices, that really upsets me. And it was one of the reasons that I got totally enthused with blockchain at the beginning, because I'd spent some time working with banks and I'd spent some time and actually one of the kind of catalysts for me feeling, you know, a massive sense of rage was a movie called The Big Short. And if you haven't seen it, I really would strongly recommend you watch it, although it may take you four or five times to watch it because there's a lot of complexity in there and it's kind of mind boggling going, but that can't have happened. Well, it did. You know, the things that went on prior to the financial crisis are mind bending. You kind of go, well, how, how could that possibly have happened? It did. You know, the only, the only thing I can say is it did happen. So going forward, I would love to think that the people who we have in government, the people who are like the thinkers, the authoritative sources on this, I would love to believe that they are thinking in terms of the common good, as in, you know, what, what kind of world do we want to live in? We need to ensure that not just privileged people have access to services, but that we are talking in the widest terms of humanity. And when we're looking at currency, I am really concerned that our mental models and our frame of reference, when we're looking at digital currency, they're still very skewed. So we've got the people who are engaging in the cryptocurrency markets for either philosophical reasons, because they, they're gambling a little bit, and you know whatever their motives, as long as they're doing no harm to other people, I'm not going to judge them. On the other side of the fence, you've got mainstream finance. We've got the retail banks and the, the financial institutions, the big names, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, HSBC, you know, the, the big names, plus the central banks, plus the kind of supranational authorities like the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, which is like the, the, the mecca of banking. And they're spending a lot of effort, time and effort, trying to come up with, well, what is our take on digital currency? Now, my question is, what do we want from this? You know, if it's just a digital representation of the cash that you and I might carry around in our pockets right now, I'm kind of going, yeah. But if it's something that will allow more people to participate better in the financial system, yeah, I'm all for it. But I am worried that the fundamental premise behind blockchain and Bitcoin from the outset was no centralized authorities and privacy. And I just have a concern that if digital currency becomes something that is the purview of central banks, that well, we still have a centralized authority and they're actually going to have way more control than they do right now. Because if you and I spend cash, it's untraceable. However, if we start transacting only in, a, in digital currency and cash disappears, that's totally traceable and privacy is gone. So essentially what, what you're saying is, what are the crossroads where the purpose of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at the moment, the purpose you know, initially was created for, yeah. but 
we're at a crossroads where the big players that Anne mentioned, they say, is it time for us to step into the world? And if they do, it loses the original purpose of decentralized and having that, that sort of gatekeeper. Yeah, it's the whole point of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies was for it to be decentralized. When banks like Bank of England are talking about, oh, they want to look at blockchains or when even big technologies such as Facebook and Amazon say they want to have a digital currency. So again, not asking a dumb question, but you know, asking a novice question. So does that mean when, when they get involved, it will actually allow them to have more control of our digital data on top of what they already have. So then you, you lose the whole purpose of decentralized and the whole purpose of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I believe so. Yeah. And I'm totally willing to be corrected on that. But my take on that right now is that if big tech, for example, Facebook with Libra, right, or any other of those massive big technology companies, because not only have they got the cloud infrastructure, right, they've got the, they've got the infrastructure and they've got technological hegemony with regards to infrastructure. So they have a massive advantage and then they can run whatever they want on it. And because they're great at rolling out services and rolling out concepts that are convenient and easy, I mean, they, they're, they're so good at it that if they manage to get the scale, unless there's an actual move from a government or group of governments saying we're going to forbid this, yeah, I think there is actually a, there is a risk. And what we have to think about is not, you know, there might be first, there might be first order benefits, but I think there might be second order downsides that we mightn't think about before it's way too late. And it would be in terms of privacy. It would be in terms of having every single action we do tracked. And what does that mean then when a for-profit organization that has proved already that it has dodgy, dodgy practices with regards to the use and resale of data? Well, are we anywhere close to talking about the common good? Are we talking about well-being? Are we talking about valuing you know, the public interest? I am very concerned about that, and I don't think it's getting enough airtime. I don't think we're thinking in sort of the critical thinking and the mental models that we're using to evaluate where we're going with this. There are gaps. There are gaps for sure, and they're concerning me. No, no, I 100% agree. I think with the latest hype of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, I think a lot of the messaging has been lost and is being just as what you said, it's sort of a gamble and make money out of it. But they sort of forgot about the message. And with all these big players coming in every day or announcing they want to get involved, it sort of becomes a different portfolio in a sense. And we may talk about like cashless society, like it's 100 years in the future. But I'm pretty sure I think Sweden said by 2023, they're going to be a cashless society. Yeah. And if, if I tell my dad that there'll be no coins or no cash in 10 years' time. We're going, what? What do you mean there'll be no coins or cash yeah. around? <laughs> well, I have a colleague, actually, in Sweden. We were talking about this, and he said, I've had you know, the equivalent of, of £20 in my wallet for the last three years, and I haven't actually managed to spend it. You know, it really isn't that far off. There are countries like Sweden, I think Estonia, they're doing it quietly. And I don't think like there's anything 
ill intentions. It just, but these things are happening. And the same way with regards to kind of blockchain, right? It's gone through a massive, massive hype. Lots of big companies got involved. And we went through the hype, you know, the Gartner hype cycle of sort of the peak of inflated expectations and then the trough of disillusionment. There are people and companies who are doing interesting things with it. VChain would be a company that comes to mind, and not only, but they're being quieter about it. And I think, you know, there's this is the interesting part of innovation is when we kind of move beyond the press releases, when we move to people actually not being noisy about their innovations and just doing things that I'm all for. But I am, you know, like you say, there's a lot of hype right now around the cryptocurrency markets. I look at it and I think, you know, there are people who are drawn to gambling, for sure. But again, as long as they're not doing any harm to anybody else, you kind of leave them off. But there are definitely people who got involved in cryptocurrency because they saw it as the only way of them being able to better themselves. You know, that it doesn't seem like the social ladder is is working anymore. It's not like you can work very hard and better yourself. That's getting very, very difficult. There is no normal financial, mainstream financial asset that will allow you to multiply your returns the way you can in cryptocurrency. And, you know, I was talking to a neighbor not that long ago. She's an 85-year-old woman, lived her whole life in France. And she was explaining to me that she grew up in a very, very poor neighborhood in rural Brittany, they, had, they didn't own the farm. They worked the land, but they didn't own it. She said, my, my childhood, I, I was never hungry, but it was what we got from the farm, right? It was eggs. It was... But, said, but then I went to Paris and I was a waitress and I managed through very hard work to massively increase my standard of living. I was able to send money home. And she said, I end up, ended up being able to buy my apartment, buy apartments for my kids. And she said, that was inconceivable for my mother. But these days... That kind of stretch in going from very little material wealth to comparatively a lot of material wealth, and we're not talking millions here, but still, you know, it's, it's a big step up. It's very difficult to do that just through hard work. You know, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. So when people are getting involved in cryptocurrency, there are people simply because they don't see any other way. I guess, again, for me, coming from a... Not a not a holistic view or, or a helicopter view, but you know someone who's who who's, who isn't close to this. It's it's fascinating listening to you and and Hesam because obviously this has been around for a while. And what I want to do is probably at this point trying to recap my understanding before we we move on to NFTs. I think we know why cryptocurrency blockchain was created post financial crisis. For listeners out there. Be mindful, I guess, and understand the purpose of a blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and what are you getting involved? And for the, I guess, some other audiences and leads out there and decision makers, again, do we want to lose more rights of our data or do we want to use blockchain for what was sort of intended? And I kind of want to leave it there. Maybe we'll come back to it towards the end as a, as a recap. I want to move on to NFTs. It's again one of those buzzwords I want to say that's been around probably less than Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. I might be wrong. Yeah, it's it's new, but it's still old in terms of Yeah. So these days I think I was watching a 
clip on YouTube. Two youngsters, they're then YouTube, their younger brother bites the older brother's finger and it became a huge sort of uh, famous YouTube clip. And 10 years later or eight years later with over 40 million views with their dad, they sat on this morning and they were talking about, we want to sell the NFT rights off the video. And the lady, the presenter was trying to explain why you want to do it and how much do you think? And the father was like, well, look, you know, it's, it's a, he was trying to explain it, but I think he didn't know. It looks like he's done his research on NFT, but not actually understand the idea he might do, but to me, it just seemed a bit vague. So it's even hitting our mainstream TVs. Someone who just had a YouTube clip, I don't know, many years ago said, well, I want to jump on this bandwagon, I guess. So should we just start and say, what is NFT? Sure. So an NFT is, I'm going to break down the acronym, a non-fungible token. Now that word fungible, that just always makes me think of fungi. (laughs) Mushrooms coming to my mind, a horrible word. But it's an important word because contrary to money, right? Money, as we know it, if we kind of follow the purest definition of money, money is fungible, which means that my five euros or my five pounds is equivalent to your five euros. Okay. So it's the same thing. Now, a non-fungible token means that, well, it's not interchangeable, right? Now, a token is a representation of a digital asset, whatever that might be. Okay. So we were talking at the very beginning about putting things on the blockchain. And we're trying to represent maybe something in the physical world, could be a diamond, right? This is done with uh, diamonds, it's been done with artworks, that we make a digital representation of it. And that is the token. And the thing about NFTs is that I'm kind of on the fence about it, right? I, I, I do try as a general rule in life not to judge people. NFTs are getting a lot of hype where people are pushing them really strongly, saying, it's, you know, this is the next era of the internet. And other people going, this is just complete rubbish. People are nuts. But the thing about NFTs is that they represent potentially value. Okay, so you can, in theory, attribute value to anything. So you gave the example of the digital rights to this video. And you might say, okay, from standing on the outside going, who in their right mind would pay money for that? And I kind of go, well, I wouldn't, but maybe somebody would. And I just kind of think, you know, very few things in the world, if nothing, if anything, has intrinsic value. It has value because somebody somewhere wants it. And Prices go up because of rarity, because lots of people want it. And I'm kind of thinking, well, if somebody gets some degree of pleasure from owning that, well, then why not? You know, it's not because I see no value in it that it has no value. And if we can allow people to create something and then share it with somebody else who sees value in it and wants to own it, well, then why not? You know, and we can be very judgmental. I go, that's just nuts. You know, I mean, why would you bother wasting your time? It's just, you know, my, my frame of reference in terms of what is valuable is not universal. None of ours is, you know, we all value and like different things. And it does address one issue that's on the internet that is, that I am quite sensitive to because I love music. And I've noticed that 
artists are struggling, right? They're struggling. You know, we still have artists who are extremely well paid and earn a lot of money, but it's getting more and more difficult because we don't buy music and we consume music, but we don't buy music. I mean, when I was much younger, it was a big deal and it was like a thing to be have enough money to go and buy a vinyl or go and buy a CD. Now I still buy vinyl, but you know, buying a CD was a thing. I like, they were my most treasured possessions. And now I just, you know, hit a button on Spotify and I consume a massive amount of music, but I don't have the same relationship to music. And the impact for artists is they're not getting paid in the same way. So Kings of Leon, for example, the group, they've issued an album as an NFT. And, you know, some of the people said, well, why, why, why would you do that? Well, because part of it is experimental. I think it's sort of a characteristic of maybe who they are. They're kind of pushing the boundaries. This hadn't really been done before. And I have a lot of admiration for that. But it's also a way of saying they're speaking, they're offering a representation of their art in a digital form to people who will value it. That is not everybody, but it is some people. And it's a way of allowing them to transact the value of their art to people who will appreciate it. And to that extent, I think NFTs have have a point. You know, yes, you can speculate on them. Yes, it can get ridiculous because you can create an NFT for anything. But again, my, my kind of posture on this is if it's not doing any harm, why not? You know, so that's that's kind of my take on NFTs. It can be, you know, transacting serious things, which could be, you know, our, what we tend to in our normal mainstream world consider these things are valuable. But it's also allowing people to interact in a different way with stuff that they create that in a normal, a more mainstream setting, that has no value. But if somebody is willing to pay for it, suddenly it has value. I think Kesson's got a question before I go. No, I don't, I don't have a question. I think it's it's almost like a transition happening. So if you look at the art world, and I'm no artist or, you know, before they used to paint on walls and stuff and then canvases, but who are we to say someone who paints on Photoshop, that is not worth something to sell. Exactly. Yeah. Because it, it's, you know, it's not easy to paint on Photoshop. I've tried to do it before, so, so I know the pain. Okay, so question for me. This I'm going to go back to YouTube clip. You, as someone has bought the right, the digital rights of, of that video. Yeah. Does that mean me, if I go on YouTube, I can no longer play that? Or do you just own the digital rights of it? Does that make sense? That, that's a totally valid question. And I'm going to put my hands up and go, I haven't got a perfect answer to that, but it's really interesting, right? Because does that mean, for example, that once you acquire the digital rights, you could potentially start charging other people to view it? Maybe. Does it mean that you could restrict it? Also, that's going to be homework for me, actually, to go and figure out, because I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, actually, if you acquire the rights, does it give you this proprietary privilege that you can start monetizing it for your own gain, further monetizing it? Maybe, yeah. So maybe it's it's actually new new ways of value creation, a different kind of business model. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would. It would make sense if again I'm going to point to Hesom. If you bought it, yeah, so you're the new owner of that video and it's had over forty million or four hundred million views, right? 
people will have to pay you to watch it if you monetize it, if you restrict it, etc. But what I don't understand is if you own the NFT of that YouTube clip, but it's still in YouTube and I click it, then what's the point of... For me, if you bought it, but I could still watch it, I was like, well, why the hell do you pay yeah, so <laughs> 200 pounds or 5,000 pounds for it? Yeah, exactly. certain things certain things with NFTs, it's, I still don't get. Like a tweet's being sold, I don't get that. But art, I can sort of get my head around it, going, okay, it's a piece of art that you own, a digital art piece. Yeah. But okay, so, okay, question around music. So the Kings of Leon that and you mentioned. So when they put that album out, you can still stream it? I haven't tried, but my understanding of the way they've done it is that it's unique, right? So you're buying a unique rep- digital representation of that music content. And it's the fact that it's unique that I guess they're hoping makes it valuable. Now, the thing about what you're saying is very important is Kings of Leon are the originators of that content, as in they're not sort of hijacking somebody else's creation and monetizing it for their own gain, which I guess you might be able to do, right? They've done it in quite a a purist way, which is they are genuinely the, the originators of the content. They are the artists. They have created unique digital representations of their album. And people who are fans are able to buy an NFT representative of that album. That would be, I think, on the kind of the purest end of the NFT spectrum. Then I guess there are people who are kind of hopping on the bandwagon going, you know what, I'm going to make a quick book on this. And that's where it gets into the, the realm where I have seen this slammed on social media. For example, somebody I follow called Theo, Theo Priestley, who's he's um, interestingly cynical about a lot of what goes on, the, on, on, on the internet. But he was sort of saying, you know, you can have people who are selling you NFTs to an asset that they don't actually own, right? They're kind of giving you this sort of third party thing they're taking the money on us. It's a digital representation of something, but they aren't actually even the owner of it. And that's where you're kind of getting into scam territory, I think. So it's it's a question of implementation. But yeah, you know what? I You've given me a lot of food for thought. I'm going to have to go do some more reading about this, about exactly where the frontiers of ownership are, what the kind of the business models are behind this, because I realized I have some gaps but you know, it's it's one of those things that where if people are being scammed, I'm not okay with that. I am never okay with people being scammed. However, if people are spending money on something that might seem a little bit out there from other people's perspective, but they but get pleasure from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, in my head, I think with some NFTs, it's creating the new collectors or collector mentality i mean if we look 20 years ago we had pokemon cards and all those things cards if you look at it you go it's just a piece of paper there's no value behind it but they sell for a thousand or hundred thousand dollars now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so if you take that and say we're saving the trees and putting a visual on digital world look i i think listening to to both you and understanding nfts again for me if i had to indulge in in, in, nfts it's the right word be mindful, be careful, because 
well, let's, I'm gonna I'm gonna just go out there. Someone might want the first video I done about the boy with two hearts. You know, the book. I'm not saying I'm gonna put an NFT and and say pay me whatever, right? They might like that because if it was the first time I talked about it openly in, in the public domain. So they want this episode of the podcast we're gonna put as an NFT with. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but that's that's the purpose of it, right? So I I, I get that because some out there might actually say, I want to hear the first time, or I want to own the rights of the first time Hamid talked about the, you know, the book in public domain. I want to have that. Great. Makes total sense. But for those who want to indulge in NFTs and get in, get in stuff that you think you might be making a quick buck, et cetera, just be mindful. Cause as Anne just alluded, there will be people who'd use this platform like any other platforms that is quite new and emerging to make quick buck for themselves don't care about the others exactly it's the hype factor yeah and that's one of the things just on that i didn't mean to interrupt you but it's just one of the things that kind of characterizes blockchain bitcoin cryptocurrencies is that there are groups of people uh, who have very different intentions there are people who are representing organizations who are trying to maintain the status quo maintain their position in the hierarchy, in the social order, thinking governments, central banks, banks. There are people and organizations who are trying to upend it for personal gain and are not particularly concerned about the consequences for wider society or wider well-being. There are people who are just trying, without causing any harm to others, trying to better themselves. And then there are groups who are really genuinely trying to say, well, our system as it functions currently, and I mean that in the widest sense, our institutions, our monetary system, our, the way we have sort of power, the balance of power, intention is very, very important. And where the intention is good, you know, I, I look on it benevolently. You know, if, if you're just trying to share and it, there's a sort of an element of playful fun about it, Fine. But if the intention is to undermine, if the intention is to, to rip people off, to profit mercilessly and damage other people, then no. And that's where, that's how I kind of look at, it's my barometer when I'm looking at these kind of technologies or things that are happening is, does it cause harm? And does it cause harm in the short term? Does it cause harm in the longer term? What is the intention behind it? And the intentions for a single technology, the intentions of the groups and the people who are using it vary massively. And you know what? That's probably the best way to summarize this episode. So the purpose of the beginning, you know, we set on this session was not investment advice, which I think we've we've adhered to. For me, I wanted to know about cryptocurrency blockchain, which I believe I do. I'm not saying I'm an expert, so don't come to me for advice. I understand NFT and the purpose behind it. I don't want to, I don't think I want to summarize it because I think and done it beautifully is these are, there are reasons behind the creation of these two different streams, which is obviously on the blockchain, but be mindful if you want to get involved, be careful on, you know, NFTs and then where you get them from and you know, with, with blockchain, I guess we kind of have to wait and see how the big players wants to get involved and what that means for the true purpose of cryptocurrency. That's probably how I'd want to. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think in, in a few years time, we'll come back to this episode and then realize how much the NFT was worth. 
Yeah, yeah. How much this? <laughs> yeah. How much this? How much this episode is worth? We were like, wow, we sold this episode for five hundred thousand. Now it's worth five million. Wow, this is crazy. No, we'll come back to a cashless society in two, three years and be like, wow, this is a crazy world we're living in now. And we talked about this in two thousand twenty-one. And things, you know, just the pace, the pace of change, right? It, that would be really interesting. You know, you kind of put this message in a bottle kind of thing. It would be really interesting to see <laughs> where we end up. Maybe that's something that we should do. You know, maybe, you know, as, as things move on, as you said, with such a pace, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, we'll have a session, you know, obviously Anne's got some, you know, research to do and some homework on my amazingly, <laughs> amazingly insightful questions that I asked randomly. But no, I think what I want to do, Anne, is just say a big thank you from myself, from Hassam, for you to jump on this podcast episode to talk about not just your experience, but also give us a true, clear understanding on the topics that I think a lot of people would want to know because they've heard about it, but not truly understand it. And hopefully we will have, you know, a session in, in a short future or hopefully maybe long future to talk about cryptocurrency and where, where it's taken us. Absolutely. That would be great to sort of do a retrospective of what we thought we knew. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, look, Anne, I'm not gonna, we're not going to keep any longer. Thank you again for being on this episode and we'll speak soon. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Three Musketeers, hosted by Hamid and Hissam Amiri. Don't forget to share and follow as more thought-provoking episodes with guests around the world will be appearing soon. See you soon.